Now I want to get to our uh, first guest of the program. He's a good friend of the program, uh, a colleague, an investigative journalist, uh, somebody we know well in Metro Vancouver, certainly in BC and and across the country. Uh, somebody known for being um, ahead of a story, for for finding and digging deeply into the data and and doing due diligence on on things that are difficult to talk about. I'm bringing in Sam Cooper. He now of the Bureau. Dot News, uh, an investigative reporter and founder of the Bureau. Sam, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Jody. As always, I read with interest, and as always, it sparks controversy, difficult conversations to be had around this ne- next subject. It's already rather blowing up on my social media. I can only matter, imagine what this story is doing uh, to your inbox. Tell us what is the latest on the Bureau.news with regard to safer supply and some unintended collateral damage hitting, hitting youth in, in the Lower Mainland. Yes, we had a we uh, published and I edited a stunning investigation by the excellent political columnist Adam Zivo, who for uh, a year now has been digging into this so-called safer supply program, specifically in British Columbia. And uh, his his story really resonated with me, Jody, because, as you know, I've been digging into the reasons, decades long reasons why Fentanyl trafficking has got a deep foothold uh, in the city of Vancouver through ports, through infiltration of organized crime. And as you know, as I've reported through the the, the dereliction of duty, really, uh, uh, on the money laundering file in casinos and real estate uh, by governments uh, in, in, well, really federally and in, in British Columbia. But to jump into what's new here, uh, Adam... Uh, approached me and and and, and shocked me with uh, his knowledge that new statistics have come out from the the coroner in British Columbia that for the first time point to really a, a, a stunning amount of impact of this safer supply, which as you know is pharmaceutical grade opioids, which are meant to uh, really be a, a a safety net for fentanyl and heroin addicts in the downtown east side so they can get so-called um you know uh non-toxic uh is is what the words are used uh grades of opioids to handle their addictions and not overdose on uh potentially you know uh poisonous fentanyl however what has happened the data shows since these safer supply programs ramped up in 2020 uh, through the federal and provincial government. In BC, the stats are now showing 22% in the year of 2022. After ramping up in 2020, now we have 2020, we have 22% of BC youth deaths are being connected to hydromorphone, which is the, the safer supply, quote, safer supply, which is being issued through BC health programs. And the catch here is that Again, this is supposed to be for uh, hardcore, really, uh, you know, uh, people suffering uh, mental health problems, homelessness, drug addiction that can't get off heroin and fentanyl. This is supposed to be safer for them. But it, as, the, as Adam and others have found, this safe supply is being really trafficked very much so into the black market and being used by dealers and addicts. To, uh, to, to deal to people that haven't yet become hooked on opioids. And what Adam found, and uh, I believe it's a stunning, important story, is a cohort of teens, specifically in Port Coquitlam, where he focused, 
appear to be, you know, drawn into fentanyl addiction through the gateway drug of uh, this so-called safer supply, which is hydromorphone. And just to end the answer here, really a, a stunning a stunningly well-done story in which Adam got uh, deep access to teens, including a young uh, youth named Madison who became hooked on uh, hydromorphone at the age of 13, ramped up quickly to fentanyl uh, addiction, and now she's trying to get her life together in rehab with some stunningly um, mature insights. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We're talking about an Adam Zevo investigative, political columnist, Adam Zevo investigative, uh, ongoing uh, look at the unintended collateral damage that safer supply of drugs in BC is impacting um, young kids, lower income kids around uh, the lower mainland in particular. This this particular report is really very specific. Sam Cooper is our guest, and he's helping us to unpack how hydromorphone might land in a Vancouver suburb of Port Coquitlam in the hands of a, of a young girl. Can you explain how this story has unfolded according to the investigation? Yes, uh Adam's investigation, I was just so impressed. It, it's stunning the access he, he got into this cohort of youth in Port Coquitlam. And so this, uh, this young youth named Madison uh, really gave him an entree into this world. And I know as the parents out in BC there, listen, uh, it, it's just, I, I believe everyone should read this because it, it's so important and shocking how this could happen. But what he found is that Look, Jody, as you know, a lot of my reporting is based on business, markets, systematic fraud. And this is what struck me in his, his investigation. He found that according to this circle of youth in Port Coquitlam, uh, around 2021, this is about a year after safe supply programs ramp up. And as COVID was starting to ramp down a bit, uh, they found that uh, drug dealers, some of them, just uh, older people that were hanging around this younger cohort, of which Adam found uh, many of them coming from uh, lower-income families, dealers would approach them and say, there's this new thing called hydromorphone. It's a painkiller. It's, uh, it's not bad for you at all. In fact, it's good for you, and it'll make you feel good. And, and so this, the girls that talked to uh, Adam in his investigation, uh, they told them that dealers said this could be bought for about 70 cents per tablet in the downtown wow. east side. How can that happen? It, this is some of this safe supply, quote, safe supply, that is uh, uh, addicts that get it for free, supposedly for health reasons, can't use it. It doesn't get them that fentanyl or heroin high. So they sell it on the black market themselves or to dealers. These dealers would source this product from the downtown east side, remember, for about 70 cents per tablet, and then take it out to Port Coquitlam and sell it for 5 to $10 per tablet. So any of your business and market, you know, focused listeners can see just the stunning profits there. And look, uh, I know before in BC, we've, we've had lots of reports of how drugs like ecstasy can impact uh, youth. And, uh, and those were $10 or $20 pills. These can be got for 70 cents a tablet in the downtown east side marked up. 
for $10. And what I found, you know, arguably much more as a potential gateway to fentanyl addiction, just the potential harms, even, you know, I would say exponentially higher than the ecstasy crisis we were worried about years ago. And so another shocking thing, uh, Madison and others uh, told Adam that when they, since, since they didn't have much money coming from lower income families, they then themselves, knowing that this drug was so cheap downtown, they would go down to the epicenter, uh, Maine and Hastings. They would go to dealers and see if they had what are called on the street dillies or D or dust or smack. They would see if they could buy these tablets. If the dealers didn't have them, the dealers would literally walk to a pharmacy downtown, go inside, say that they were uh, by by various means, say they were part of this safer supply program, get the drugs from pharmacists, walk out and sell it to these uh, young women. And so uh, that walks you through, uh, you know, what what we would call qualitative research on how this uh, safer supply drug is ending up in the hands of youth in the Vancouver area. And remember, uh, this, these accounts match those uh, data points I told you at the start. We now have the BC Coroner Service saying there were zero hydromorphone-related youth drug deaths back in 2017 to 2019. In 2020, when the program is introduced, goes up to 5%. By 2022, we have over 20% involved in youth-related drugs. And as you said, this is... Uh, Hotly, you know, it's very political. Uh, everyone wants a yeah. solution here. So it's important to mention that, uh, as Adam found, you know, uh, not, all, not all youth that died would have this in their system. But the contention here from experts is that they would be getting hooked on uh, fentanyl and uh, heroin by getting this very cheap and easy to access hydromorphone through what is believed, you know, through those safer supply channels. So we've only got a minute to go here, but I, I'm in talking about this on social media, I'm saying that you were coming on. I had a, a number of people point to a June two thousand or June fifth of this year, um, where the chief coroner basically said, uh, and the provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, basically condemned polarizing rhetoric over BC safe drug supply, and the pushback is that this is very partisan. This is very political. This is a, pushing that the safer supply isn't. Uh, helping and in fact having unintended collateral impacts as you've laid out here today. How do you respond to those who would say this is a political talking point? Well, um, yeah, I'm a I'm a data focused, evidence based reporter, and as you know, uh, Jody, I've looked at the downtown east side through various lenses for years. I do know this is very politically contentious, the so-called sort of harm reduction method versus whether law enforcement is even a factor uh, in, in, in drug policy in British Columbia. Look, uh, at the end of the day, these are political decisions being made. Uh, the premier and others would have to decide whether to decriminalize, you know, small quantities of fentanyl. Um, so people that are complaining about, you know, uh, well, I, no, let's not, let's not uh, castigate anyone for this. As you said, it's very serious. But look, the New York Times is uh, from abroad is looking at the, these decisions. The world is looking at what's happening in Vancouver. There are no easy ways out. And uh, this right. is just another viewpoint on, on what could be happening to low income youths and uh, the threats uh, really that I would say are stemming from decades of bad policy in British Columbia and a problem that's very hard to get out of. 
Sam Cooper, you always bring to the table difficult conversations to be had, but important ones at that. The Bureau.news is where you can read this full uh, Adam Zivo report that Sam is referencing here. As always, appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jody. Jody Vance sitting in for Mike Smith today and all next week, in fact. Glad to be with you on this Friday. A lot to get to on the subject of how costly it is to simply go to the grocery store or the retail outlet, whatever the store might be. It's inflation, it's affordability, it's supply chains, it's so much. But it's also the desperation of some and the spike in shoplifting. People are more desperate by the day with the rising inflation. You know, what we used to be able to afford, not even think about going into a grocery store and and wondering what we might be able to buy from the produce section or what we might choose between the staples in our home. And that's a reality for many people. And that has led to, to more and more shoplifting in our grocery stores, but also, as I mentioned, in, in other retail outlets as well. And that has retailers re- reporting huge spikes in not just shoplifting, but also abusive behavior towards sales staff and cashiers. And, and how do people stop? If you see somebody stealing something, what do you do? We're going to open up phones on that. Like if you witness somebody steal something, do you do anything today? Would you have done something in the past and you don't now? I'm going to open up phones on on that subject coming up in the next segment. But first, let's talk about the controversy surround checking receipts at some outlets. We're not going to get specific to any particular store. We just want to talk about why it is becoming more commonplace for there to be, perhaps saw it on Global Morning News today, uh, or, or yesterday for that matter, where a gentleman recounted having his his cart locked, the wheels locked at the front door of the store, and and a store employee came up to him and said, I'm going to need to look at your receipt. He felt like he had done something horribly wrong. He felt like he was being criminalized. And and of course, he was checked and, and, and he was able to go. But the, the experience led him to feel as though he would not return to that uh, outlet. Is that a big reaction? Is that an overreaction? Is it where we're headed now, especially with with self-checkouts and what have you? Let's dive into all of this with somebody who is well-versed on the subject matter of retail. He is Greg Wilson, Retail Council of Canada, joining me on the line. Greg, thanks for doing this. Good morning, Jody. Good morning. So a lot of people say, what's the big deal? Show your receipt. You paid for it. Here's your receipt. Off you go. Others are saying, I'm feeling targeted. And maybe there's some profiling going on about what I might be wearing, whether what I might uh, appear to be to some random person working in a store. Where's the middle ground on this, in your opinion, Greg? Well, I think that what this is, is this is um, various stores deciding that this is a way that they have to reduce shrinkage, to reduce the theft that's going out of their doors. Um, it's very disappointing because it's there's something that's happened in our society since the pandemic that's caused a 300% increase in theft from stores. But, you know, we are all paying for this. And so we all have a vested interest. And it is not a pleasant experience to be apt to have these things happen to you. And certainly I wouldn't be any different than any other consumer in that regard. But mm-hmm. the cause of this is that just the sheer significant and exponential growth in theft from retail stores. 
So say that again, about 300% since the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, and it's Thefts pretty of, consistent. You yeah. hear it from small neighborhood stores and from the largest stores. And, you know, look, the calls from small independent stores, those calls that we take all the time, they're very difficult to to listen to. They really do pull at your heartstrings because these are, you know, small individual or family operated businesses. We're with Greg Wilson, the Director of Government Relations and Regulatory Affairs at the Retail Council of Canada. When these shifts took place over this unprecedented time that we've all experienced the last three years that has felt like a decade, and it's just been such an enormously um, traumatic experience for a global community. So this is not a, a Canadian phenomenon is I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get to like this. We're seeing this trend happen on a global scale. Are we not? Um, we're seeing some of this happen on the same, uh, on a global scale. Certainly the anxiety um, levels that seem to cause this are different, vary a bit from country to country, but it's fairly consistent. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, theft is up in dramatically in North America, but not necessarily elsewhere. Yeah. And so, it's not even equal all across Canada. Uh, what, where are the hotspots? Well, Western Canada as a whole is a hotspot. Is it? The Western Canada, just the affordability is, is probably fueling it. Is it the desperation of people? It's not clear that it's entirely affordability because, you know, the uptick in inflation really took hold about, you know, in the last, you know, 16 to 18 months. And the Mm. dramatic increase in shoplifting and and theft um, really started well before that and really came with the pandemic. Can we talk a little bit about the increased abuse and uh, abusive behavior towards sales staff and cashiers and, and violence in retail stores? Or is that also a, a hotspot here in the West or is that across the country? It's worse, I think, in Western Canada, but it does exist in other parts of the can- of the country. We've seen it in central Canada definitely as well. Um, it's mm-hmm. very disappointing. We obviously have a responsibility to protect our workers and you know, it's not easy to recruit and train and retain retail staff, frontline retail staff. And, you know, they have not, um, the workers themselves have not caused the problems that, you know, they've not raised the prices themselves. So it's really disappointing to see this happen. So when you, when speaking about the, the changes here, how much of a role might self-checkouts play in this? Uh, when when we're talking about the theft piece, because there, you know, the frustration with the staff, I think, you know, hopefully everybody can be a little kinder and gentler in our everyday lives, even though there has been this enormous level of stress and affordability and and the crunch and and just the difficulty in making ends meet. Um, you can kind of point to that, but the self checkout piece, some would say that that is, you know, decreasing the human connection and the accountability certainly, and sort of giving opportunity. For that, you know, I'm just going to not scan the most expensive item here and and hope that no one notices. Is there an increase just because we are moving towards automation to some degree? I mean, I think that that's possibly the case. I think you're right on the point of human interaction. It's simply harder to steal from an individual. Um, Also, there's an individual checkout 
if you're at a checkout, there's an individual scanning all your goods. But those mm. checkouts exist for a different reason. There are societies very interested now in convenience, and they're there for customer convenience. About 10 years ago, it seemed people didn't mind as much standing in a checkout line. Now people are more resistant to standing in a checkout line and more apt to complain if they have to line up at the checkout. And that's resulted in a situation where some stores have, have put in automated checkouts. And it's not lost on the industry that this is also a response to the lack of available labor to hire to work in frontline retail op occupations. And we had that as one of our news stories today, that there is a report out that retailers are really struggling to find those employees. How To what do you attribute that and, and how might we lean in to fix that? Well, I think there's a perception, at least, that it's not as pleasant to work as it used to be. Um, and mm. so, you know, what's happened is frontline retail wages have gone up dramatically in the last number of years. But still, even with that, it's been difficult to recruit people. So some of that relates to how people think of it as a job. It's not necessarily a job they want to do. Where before, people went to work in retail because they enjoyed the interaction with other human beings and enjoyed that experience. And there are people, you know, as you, you keep saying, frontline, frontline, and th that those are that's a term that we've all learned all too clearly over these last number of years that a frontline worker is one that continues to go, you know, no matter when we're all being told to go home and stay home for our own safety, a frontline worker is still there doing what needs doing. And there is, there's stress attached to that as well. So, you know, layered on top of perhaps you're going to deal with angry customers um, and the long hours and, and how difficult it can be. Um, but there's that stress of it as well. Do you think that, that there's some exhaustion there? You know, my experience with frontline retail workers is that they're in the main, very, very lovely people to deal with. And yes. so, you know, it's hard to imagine that somebody would find that they need to yell at or even physically assault a, a retail staff member. Um, hmm. But, you know, they have a job to do and they show up and do that job and still somehow remain um, very cordial and pleasant to deal with. So it's upsetting to me that that society, that our society seems to have lost that ability to be kind. Yeah, that empathy piece is, is certainly strained at the moment. We're with Greg Wilson, Director of Government Relations and Regulatory Affairs for the Retail Council of Canada. And just before I let you go, Greg, um, when it comes when it comes to those who would say that retailers are spiking the ball when it comes to inflation being a reason that 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 they're adding to the problem in the name of saying we have you know massive losses therefore we have to raise our prices there are people that you know even just posting that i was going to have this conversation today on on the air it immediately garnered people saying we're all being ripped off um can you speak to the realities around the cost, you know, the, the impacts of what we've experienced, whether it be supply chains, inflation, uh, labor costs, as well as uh, trying to limit those losses and deter, uh, deter uh, shoplifters? 
Well, I mean, firstly, I think you'd agree that social media doesn't always improve public discourse, but a 300% increase, a 300% increase in shoplifting, which is across the country in many billions of dollars, has an impact at the cash register. It is only one of those impacts. There's, you know, we talked about the increase in the wages of the frontline workers. That is an impact. The cost of goods that we buy from our suppliers, also important. We're very supportive, of, particularly the grocery industry, of our of our partners who are farmers and food processors. But those people deserve to make a living wage as well. And so yeah. those costs have all increased. And yes, the cost of groceries has gone up. We hope it that that will abate. But uh, you know, we're not the only part of that puzzle. There is um, right at the moment an initiative to create a grocery industry code of conduct to make those uh, price changes more transparent and and equal across the system between the, for example, the farmers and the processors and the transporters and stores. Good, good. Great, great answer. I appreciate you taking on that question, Greg, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. We understand that the permitting process right now is holding up the delivery of housing. So we're streamlining that. We're allowing digital applications and there's more work to do in terms of getting to rezonings faster. That is Vancouver City Councillor Peter Meisner talking about the permitting process that's holding up housing. One of the many factors playing into what is a crisis, an absolute crisis for people just trying to live and work in Metro Vancouver, really. But the city of Vancouver is is unaffordable to the nth degree. It is remarkable as somebody born and raised in Vancouver to see the cost of just just to make it by. Just a small space, a tiny rundown spot is thousands of dollars per month. Peter Waldrich is our guest. He's the director of Abundant Housing Vancouver, a Vancouver-based lawyer and advocate for more affordable, sustainable, and livable cities. Peter, good to talk to you again. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. What is it going to take for us, particularly in Vancouver, because it is kind of ground zero. We can talk about Metro Vancouver and beyond. I mean, it's spreading out because the affordability crunch is so intense. What must happen here? It feels like a broken record question to dent this, never mind solve our housing problem. Yeah, well, look, there's a lot of things going on with housing, but there is one core major problem that we are facing, and that is a huge shortage of housing. There just isn't enough housing in Vancouver, especially in the city of Vancouver, to go around. And that creates all sorts of problems, right? When there's just not enough housing, it turns into a really vicious game of musical chairs where there's going to be people left out, and they end up competing with other people in other regions, and it just turns into a big disaster. And that's where we are right now. So that's really the number one thing we need to do is drastically increase the amount of housing that you're building, but just not building nearly enough, even to accommodate the existing shortage, let alone to accommodate all the growth that this region is seeing. So, and and when we talk about some of the big projects that are on the go here, Sinoc or the Jericho lands, we, you know, we see some of the density that we've heard discussed for years and years. We're talking decades to get Mm -hmm. these completed. How does the urgent housing 
shortage get addressed? As you mentioned, with people wanting to move here, people that want to live from abroad here, um, and we just simply do not have the, the roofs for heads. Yeah, look, some of these big projects are great. I, I'm a huge supporter of SNOC, the Jericho Lands. These are great projects, but they are really, yeah. uh, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. I think they show us what we should be doing in other parts of the city. And so I think what we really need to do is really broad-based upzoning. We just need to legalize mm. more housing across the entire city. So like in the city of Vancouver right now, which is the center of a metro area of over two and a half million people, it's not a small town, but in this in this city, Apartments are banned on over 80% of the residential land. No wonder we have a housing crisis. We have a whole system that makes it extremely difficult and expensive and risky to build houses. And a lot of it is just flat out illegal. So that's the first step. And you know, some other countries show us a way out of this. In New Zealand, for example, Auckland was facing, it's their largest city, it was facing a, a pretty severe housing crisis, housing shortage as well. And so the senior level of government stepped in started instituting new policies to make it so that more to upzone the entire city, almost the entire city was upzoned. And since 2016, we have seen their housing production dramatically increase and rents in real terms actually dropped from where they were in 2016. So, you know, solutions are possible. They're all out there, but it will take some courage and some initiative from our leaders. So upzoning if if it was just like a blanket, okay, everybody build what you want when you want, even if it's like you're limited to this number of square feet per lot size, blah, 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 whatever it is. If there's, you know, there's some guardrails, but you know what, if you want to take your Shaughnessy home that has three gardens and four garages and a massive single family dwelling on it, and you want to turn that into, you know, eight freestanding units um, that are three stories, uh, you can do that. How how unpopular is that for a politician? You know, I actually think there is a huge upside to legalizing more housing. Survey after survey shows that housing is actually really popular. But it, the problem is when you get to these really local levels, because, uh, you know, the, something's Something that people sometimes say is that the cost of new housing is sort of local, but the benefits are, are regional or across the entire system, which is one of the reasons why I think it's important for the provincial government and the federal government to, to get back into totally. the housing game, basically, right? So uh, that's a great example right. because I think but the, you know, I was right now... I'm referencing... Sorry, go ahead. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, Peter, because my question was more about the NIMBYs because there are we've, we've seen it firsthand in Vancouver. There are people like, I've already got my house and I don't want to change my neighborhood. And how, those are the people that fundamentally need to change their way of thinking. They live in a big city now, not a town. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of it is just going to be working past these people, but also to show them that there is a better future available that even they can benefit from. I think a lot of NIMBYs don't realize that the right. harm they're doing even themselves and to their own families. A West Point Gray in Vancouver is a great example of this, right? They've been very successful for the last 60 or 70 years at basically preventing all new housing from going in there to preventing new neighbors from coming in there. And now yeah. they're looking around and saying, Our, the, the stores here are dying. My own kids, my own yeah. grandkids can't afford to live in this neighborhood. What happened? Well, that's sort of the consequences of some of their own actions, right? And so I think if we can sort of move with some courage 
courage and and some conviction that we need to work towards real solutions and stop catering to what I think is really actually a small minority of people, then I think we can show everybody that there is a better way, that the opportunity to build a more vibrant, sustainable, affordable city is something that benefits mm -hmm everybody, including existing homeowners who maybe are a little bit wary of seeing change in their neighborhood. And just to add one more thing to that, that's one of the reasons the process, I think, right now is so broken is because it really is, I think, a minority of people who have these strong yeah. views. But the system is sort of the sort of amplifying their voices and giving them way too much influence. I think if, if right. leaders show some courage, there is a lot of upside and a lot of people will benefit and a lot of people will be happy. Do you think that the provincial government basically saying, you know, fix this or we will fix it for you, you have six months to streamline things, is going to help? Absolutely. I mean, I think we haven't seen the details of their proposal yet. So, you know, it's hard to say right. exactly right, you know, how it's going to work, whether it'll be effective it's or not. It's a good ribbon cutting, but, though. Good ribbon cutting. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll learn more in the fall. That's when we're supposed to get some more details. But I, I'm optimistic. I think in general, getting good. senior levels of government involved is absolutely necessary because it's senior levels of government who, uh, you know, they feel the, the pain of an economy that's struggling. Uh, workers yeah. who can't move around to get to their jobs, right? Like that, that the, the, the pain of the housing shortage is felt at the higher levels of government across the entire society. So I'm really optimistic that, um, that senior, getting, getting them back in the game is a really crucial step. Because, you know, we have kind of a funny situation with housing, right? On the one hand, it is extremely tightly regulated, super, super regulated, where you're know, at the local level where doing anything is just almost impossible because how super regulated it is. But at the higher levels of government, right. at the provincial level, it's completely unregulated, right? They have nothing to say about housing supply. So changing that and getting provincial level, uh, the provincial government back into the game, back and involved in what is really, I think, a matter of, you know, definitely provincial and even national importance, I think is absolutely crucial. And I, and I strongly support that. Right. Getting the federal government back engaged in making affordable housing for people to live and work in the cities that right now yeah. are just oppressively expensive. Peter, as always, I appreciate your perspective and, and thank you for taking some time out on your Friday. Oh, I really appreciate it. Always great to be on, Jody. Have a great day. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. We were talking about the affordability crisis when it comes to housing stocks across the province certainly Metro Vancouver, and we dialed it in in the previous segment to Vancouver, the city of Vancouver, and just how incredibly unaffordable it is, what needs to give, what needs to change, how can we, how can we get to where we need to be so everyone has a place to call home, whether it's ownership or rental. Uh, and, and it was interesting um, speaking with, with Peter Waldrich about that, and how at the end of the day, it really is about upzoning and rezoning and, and permitting and, and just getting shovels in the ground and let's go. But, but those are even years out. To build what's needed uh, will take time. And we've heard the, the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, say that regularly right here on these airwaves. But what if you're a senior and you can't wait? What if you're struggling right now? What do you do if you can't find a place to rent where you've always lived? on a fixed income or you've had your spouse pass away, you just simply can't afford one on your own. We want to talk about that for the next few minutes. Leslie Godet is our guest, president and uh, president of the Council of Senior Citizens Organization. Leslie, good to talk with you. Thanks for doing this. Good morning, Jody. 
so stressful for so many seniors, uh, some who, who are just living their best life and, and doing things and feeling capable and able-bodied and well, and then some life event shifts everything intensely and immediately, and they're found with nowhere to go. How, how much of a crisis are we in in that regard? I think we're in a, we are in a crisis, and it's desperation all around, both with the seniors themselves and the people in agencies that are trying to help them find, navigate the housing system and find something they can afford. Because, Leslie, let's dig into some of the 101 about this. Because I imagine there are people who started saving maybe, you know, just a little bit, just enough to get by, they thought. And then how dramatically the cost of living has changed, even in the last five years. Yes, and I think like rent is the major cost, housing costs are the major portion of a senior's um, budget. Um, We have a lot of seniors living on very low incomes, less than the minimum wage would pay them. The average cost, according to the seniors um, advocate, the average income of seniors is $31,000 a year, and half of seniors, that's 500,000 British Columbians, live below that amount, about 25% or 250000 are living on around $21,000 or less. With an income of $1,700 or $1,800 per month, you can only should only be paying 30% of that in rent, which would be 500 and even at some of the higher income levels, $700 per month, and the supply is just not there. No, and nor is there supply in subsidized seniors living as well. So there's, no, there, there found, are multi-levels of this. No, we've looked at the stats, and there's been very little, if no, increase in the amount of seniors' subsidized housing. There's a lot of pressures from other, other needy groups in society that also are looking for social housing. And the seniors, and, in some cases, get squeezed out. So what... What needs to happen, in your view, as the president of, of uh, Council of Senior Citizens Organization, what, where, can, where can help be given? Well, we've been um, pressing the provincial government, um, one, to increase this rent, this shelter allowance for elderly renters or the SAFER program. Right now, it's not working. The average subsidy is less than $200 per month. And with wow. the rent cap... Of $803 in Metro Vancouver, um, anything above that is the senior's responsibility to pay. It's just not high enough to cover rents that are probably around $1,400, $1,500 a month, even for something that's supposed to be affordable. Yeah, even if it's a studio apartment. I mean, what's the average cost now of a, of a studio or one bedroom in Vancouver is, a, is you know, north of $2,000 a month. It's remarkable. Right, and we need to see an increase in, what is it, purpose-built rental housing so that the rents can be managed effectively. Right now, a lot of rents are based on you're renting a condo off somebody and you're paying their mortgage for them with your rent, and if the condo switches hands, then somebody else's mortgage is going to be higher, so the rent will go up. Um, so that is the purpose-built rental housing, the social housing. Having housing available that's at truly 30% of your income is really, really important. 
to help seniors ensure seniors can meet all their other expenses. Right, and supply and demand is a big piece of this, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the cost of living is remarkable. And Corey Latondra, our producer here, is like a one-bedroom rental in Vancouver right now is hitting over $2,500 a month. So we can do the math on, you know, the, yeah. the difference between $800 a month and $2,500 a month is significant, to say the least. It's a third, less than a third. So, so Leslie, when it comes to availability... Pardon? No, I was just worried about availability, like just being able to find a rental now, because would 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 ending the Airbnbs uh, or the short, I shouldn't pick out just Airbnb yeah, as one, but short term rentals are eating up some of the stocks that would be perhaps the perfect destination for seniors. A garden that's suite. certainly one factor that seems to be in play. The other factor is as older, more affordable apartments buildings are being demolished to make way for larger higher density um, but newer construction that cannot be built you literally cannot build um, apartment buildings to rent at five to seven hundred dollars a month without deep subsidies from other levels of government yeah so we're looking to the provincial government and the federal government to help seniors here that's your call to action leslie yes I would say so. And we'd also like to see the the SAFER program um, improved as well. And, and when you say the SAFER program, give us just a, just if you've got a 30-second explanation of what the SAFER program is so our listeners understand. It helps um, seniors with their rent, but there's an income ceiling and a rent ceiling. So any rent up above $803 a month, will not be subsidized, but below that there will be some subsidies paid depending on your income. But the so it's t- but some, sometimes it's it happens, something that we need to be talking up and the right. um, the rent subsidy goes Senior. down even though right. the rent's gone up way more than the income has. It's not it's not keeping in, in line with the cost, the actual real cost of living. So we all need to talk to our elected officials about this. Leslie, Leslie Godet, the president of the Council of Senior Citizens Organization. I hope they're listening. Uh, all of us uh, need to care for our elders, period. And, and I appreciate you shining some light on this today. Yeah, thank you very much, Jody. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Time to talk about salmon stocks and in particular protecting the incredible defining fish of the south coast of BC, the coast of BC, the Pacific coast for that matter. Yes, there's Atlantic salmon. We'll talk about how that's impacted the Pacific stocks, but also how the this week's cabinet shuffle might impact how salmon stocks are protected here on our Pacific coastline. And, and some progress that has been made in recent years about open net pens and the, and the complexities of farmed salmon on our coastlines and the, and the impact it's having on the wild salmon stocks. And, and I want to bring in somebody who knows much more about this subject than I do, and hopefully I can get educated by the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, Bob Chamberlain, along with our listeners. Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I'm looking forward to learning the complexities of this highly um, contentious issue by some um, in, in the demand on salmon and how we need to protect them. So thanks for being here today. Oh, good morning, Jody, and thank you for having me. I'll share all the information that I can squeeze in with the few minutes we have. 
Okay, let's do it. Like, let's first and foremost talk about the amount of demand on our salmon stocks here in BC, wild versus farmed. How much is sold out of out of our province worldwide? Well, when, right now the government is quite focused on jobs, right? And and when we consider what wild salmon, healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks mean to British Columbia, it is a massive industry. And when we have that that machine moving along very well, there are five times more jobs in the wild fisheries than there are in aquaculture. And so this is something that the government's going to have to come to terms with. And also the true state of wild salmon in British Columbia, given, you know, this is the first year of return since the big bar landslide, which will have an impact on the upper Fraser, uh, sockeye and so on. So it's time that we look for every protection measure possible so we can ensure that, you know, this iconic species for uh, BC is not going to be going the way of the East Coast cod. Right. So we have 130,000 plus jobs rooted in wild salmon in in BC Um, and and thousands, tens of thousands of British Columbians have signed on to uh, protect wild salmon stocks here. What what progress has been made in getting away from the 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 net pens um, and, and where do we need to go from here? Well, you're correct. I mean, we've had polls which show that 75 percent of British Columbians favor or are in support of this liberal government's transitioning to fish uh, fish farms out of the ocean by 2025. Eighty six percent of British Columbians polled. Uh, listed the the protecting of wild salmon as as their highest environmental priority. And, of course, we've got the entire West Coast commercial salmon salmon fleet, which have publicly stated support for the removal of the pens. And organizations like the Wilderness Tourism Association of BC represents over 130,000 jobs are also in support. And let's not forget that we have Um, There's 203 First Nations in British Columbia, 180 of them are dependent on wild salmon, and 123 of them have stated publicly uh, that they support the transition of fish farms out of the ocean. So with the transition plan that's been underway over the past couple of years, we have a new minister that's going to be brought up to speed on all of these details. And it is an active First Nation consultation. So it's going to be something that's going to have to see an end, a product. And then we're going to be able to see the transitioning of fish farms to as a measure of reconciliation across the province, as a measure to protect uh, a vast amount of employment across the, the province and get on with working at rehabilitating the salmon and the habitats that need to be worked on across British Columbia. We're with Bob Chamberlain, the chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance. Now, you've you've thrown out a lot of very meaningful numbers, and we're talking about some significant mm-hmm. deadlines here, but cutting it down to what needs to happen next steps. There are 57 farms to go. Is that right? Yeah, and, you know, what needs to happen is we need to see the government continue the path that the provincial government has already laid down. And I say that because the Broughton Archipelago saw 19 fish farms leave the waters. The Shishalt Nation, working with the provincial government, removed the farms from their territories and the removal of the farms from Discovery Islands. 
we're down a path now where we are enacting and embracing uh, the precautionary principle, as the previous DFO minister stated, which is something that's raising eyebrows internationally. But it's time that we look to uh, develop land-based closed containment because it's happening around the world. We've got Washington State just signed a partnership agreement with a Nova Scotia-based Sustainable Blue and Greek Seafood that operate 13 farms in BC are building or invested in Proximar, which is a land-based facility in Oyama, Japan. And so we're either going to you know, get ahead of this and get on the bus early and evolve, right. or we're going to be left behind. And then we're going to have some very disgruntled workers that are going to be saying, why didn't we get ahead of this when we had the opportunity? So going back to the fact that the cabinet shuffle gives um, some concern here, not that there's been any signal that the that the incoming minister won't be up to speed on on the progress made here, Bob. But but it, it is the reason why the jumping off point for us to have this conversation is for those to be aware of the importance of keeping your voice loud if you want to see this transition continue and also uh, acknowledge the the reconciliation piece of this and, and support of the First Nations that are saying, please help us continue this plan through to the deadline of 2025. No, you're absolutely correct because we have, when we consider 123 First Nations have stood up and said, we support the transition of fish farms from the ocean. That's an incredibly significant number of First Nations in BC standing in support of the government. And so this is, uh, the mandate has been in place for about four years now, and this will be the third minister stepping into this uh, plan, but it's well underway. We are now entering into phase three of a four-phase process. Uh, This government has made the choice to include First Nations that have an Aboriginal right to fish, to salmon. So it's not just site-specific consultation, but it's taking into concern food security all across the province. And, of course, food security is a significant component of the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People. The federal and provincial governments are uh, developing legislation and paths forward to implement that. And so I see this as an opportunity for any government to advance province-wide reconciliation that's going to benefit the environment across British Columbia and really keep this engine of wild salmon economy alive and moving forward. Bob, where can people go if they want to learn more about this? Do you have a website for us? Um, no, the, uh, I would encourage people, like we work very closely with Wild First, so wildfirst.ca. Um, has a a wealth of information, including the map of the First Nations that support this. But one thing I want your listeners to to know is uh, Premier Eby has agreed to meet with the Wild Salmon Alliance and the chiefs that are part of our um, alliance. And we're going to be, I've got the okay to extend the invitation to the new DFO minister. And so this, I think, shows uh, this provincial government has got a very high priority on the restoration and rehabilitation of salmon. But now we're going to be talking about a, uh, a substantial trust fund as the focus to see if we can uh, get enough players to come together to develop something that will hopefully be for once in a lifetime where we can do all the necessary work across the province once we see the, the completion of the fish farm transition planning. Because if we don't, I mean, if we go and rebuild a bunch of salmon watersheds and salmon runs and we leave the fish farms there, it's going to be like trying to pump gas through a fire. 
because they simply right. have that level of impact to wild fish. And, you know, I've mentioned land-based closed containment. Industry now is coming forward with these hybrid uh, systems, but the thing, what they're not saying is it doesn't stop pathogens from being introduced to the waterways, which I think is one of the single greatest threats to wild salmon. And so they are more of a distraction or a pretend than actually embracing a transition that the Wild Salmon Alliance sees as a meaningful step to protect wild salmon. Protect and modernize a system for sustainability long term. Bob, thank you for your time today. Well said, well explained. Thanks for the education. Keep us posted. You bet. Thank you very much. Cheers.